Lord, that's the, uh, the, that's what we live by, Lord, trusting in you. No matter what, Lord, our faith is in you. We're in your hands. And no matter what, Lord, no matter what comes our way, no matter what happens, we trust in you that we will not leave this place one second, one moment, one hour before we're to go home. And that in the meantime, Lord, we're to be bold as lines, serving you, being out there, loving people. What an amazing time to be alive. What an amazing time to witness the things that you've spoken of in the book of Revelation coming to an head, coming about right before our very eyes. You know, it's, it's like we look out the window every day wondering what chapter in Revelation we're in today. It's just an amazing time to be alive, Lord, and we're grateful that we are here for such a time as this. Help us, Lord, to, to show our faith in all that we say and do, that it may, be glor may bring you glory and honor. So go before us here this morning as we worship you, praise you, Lord, as we sit at your feet. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning on Facebook and live stream. If you're with us on Facebook this morning, you just kind of sent us a little message saying you're, you're listening. Say hello. It's nice to know you're out there. Nice to know we're not all alone here. If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to finish up chapter 11 today, Lord willing. Um, we only have a couple verses this morning, but they are jam-packed with meat. Now, the title of our message this morning is As Good As Done. As good as done is an idiom. Not an idiot, it's an idiom. And it means if you ask me to do something and I agree to do it, it's as good as done. For example, if you hired me to paint your house, I wouldn't recommend that, but if you did, if you hired me to paint your house and I agree to paint your house, it's as good as done, meaning nothing will prevent me from painting your house once I agree to paint it. And as good as intentioned as that is, I'm still susceptible to human conditions, right? I could have an accident. I could get sick. All those things would prevent me from painting your house. But when God says it's as good as done, there is nothing that will prevent what he says will happen from happening. Amen? So our angel this morning announces that the kingdom of this the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And what the angel is saying is this has not happened yet, but it is good as done. So let's dig in. Let's look at verse 15 of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ." And he shall reign forever and ever. So there's loud voices in heaven. I think one thing we can all be in agreement on is that heaven is a pretty loud place. Not going to be a lot of sleeping going on in heaven. If you don't like loud no loudness, then you better reserve a private room now, because heaven's a pretty loud place. 
And it's loud for a reason. I mean, there's many multitudes of voices singing praises to God, right? But there's also excitement in heaven, especially now as this seventh trumpet sounds. There's an excitement in heaven. There's excited, joyful voices clamoring because the evil in this world is coming to an end. And so this is the most exciting news in heaven since the birth of the Messiah, when the voices of the angels also sang the night that Jesus was born. When the birth of Jesus was announced, it was the most important, most exciting birth announcement ever made. The angel announced, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Luke chapter 2 verse 14. Because of God's goodwill toward mankind, he sent his only begotten son to this earth to reestablish peace between a sinful man and a holy God. Paul wrote, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. So the announcement of the birth of the Messiah is exciting because his birth brought great joy to the world. Amen? Amen. And those who have been justified through our faith in Jesus Christ, his birth is joyful, exciting news indeed, isn't it? But for those who have not submitted their lives to Jesus Christ, who have not surrendered their wills to him, his birth, his death, his resurrection mean little to them. So with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, it brings another exciting announcement to the world. Jesus will be coming again soon to rule and reign. Those who have ignored the announcement of his birth, of his death, of his resurrection, she's fine, Mel, if you want to keep her which is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not going to be able to ignore this announcement. They're not going to be able to ignore the announcement of Jesus Christ coming to rule and reign on this earth. And just as the announcement of our Messiah's birth and the thought of his return brings excitement and joy to those who know the Lord as Lord and Savior, that seventh trumpet announcement, which announces his return, should strike fear into the hearts of those who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. His first coming to this earth was to save mankind from their sin. The second coming to this earth will be to cleanse the earth from the sin. The psalmist wrote, the psalmist wrote For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for this place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Psalm 37, verses 9 through 11. So this is what's happening during the tribulation period, the period we're in right now in the book of Revelation. The wickedness on this earth is being cleansed from the earth. And I want you to pay close attention to what the angel says. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Currently, who controls the kingdoms of this world? Satan. When Jesus was in the desert, and we read about that in Luke chapter 4, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me before, 
If you will worship before me, rather, all will be yours. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. So Satan could take Jesus and show him all the kingdoms of the world and offer him all the kingdoms of the world because they were his to offer. Paul wrote, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. The God of this age, Satan. That's why John writes in his first letter, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 You see, if you love the things of this world, you are, you are actually loving the things of the God of this world, Satan. That's why we're to be set apart, set, set out from this world. You know, when I think about Satan being the God of this world, I think about the medieval times when kings ruled over villages and over the countryside. And so if you had an evil king that ruled in that particular kingdom, and you were a stranger from another kingdom just passing through, you'd be in hostile territory, wouldn't you? You'd be in danger of attack from that rival kingdom. And that's what it's like for a Christian today traveling through this world that we're in now. It's hostile territory. We're just pilgrims from another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, traveling through a kingdom controlled by an evil king, Satan. But what our text tells us this morning and why there's so much excitement in heaven is that the rule of Satan is about to be broken. He's about to lose his grip over this world. And that is wonderful news. Now, Satan is a usurper. He gained his power. He gained the control through the fall of man in the garden. It was never intended for Satan to be the god of this world. It was never intended for him to be in control. At creation, God gave man dominion over the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26. God gave dominion to Adam without giving up his own sovereignty over the world. God put Adam in charge, but God is still in control. He's still sovereign. It would kind of like be, uh, it would be like an owner who had a business, and he, and he puts the business in the hands of a manager for a season. Now, he still owns the business. He's just giving control of the business to a manager for a season. So that owner owns the business. He just chooses to leave it in the hands of his manager. Now, if the manager allows someone else to take control of that business while the owner is gone from him, he loses dominion or rule to that person, right? The owner still owns the business, but that person who's taken it from the manager has become the usurper. He wasn't given control in the beginning. He took control from the one that was left in charge. He's not the rightful manager. He's not the owner. So when the owner does come, no doubt he's going to put this usurper out. And that's what Satan is. Satan is a usurper. And this is what kind of happened in the garden. Adam was given control over the earth. Adam gave control or lost control of the earth to Satan, the usurper, in the fall. And one day, soon I pray, the rifle owner will come back and give the usurper the boot. So who is the rifle owner? Well, we saw that at the beginning of the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 read, 
and we saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. So who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only worthy one. He is the only rightful ruler. And he's coming to take control of this earth from Satan. The angel in Revelation 10, if you remember, told all of heaven, and told all of the earth that there would be no more delays. The Redeemer is coming to take control of this earth, to rule and reign over man, mankind that he redeemed with his blood. That's what makes him the only rightful ruler. So man and Satan have been in control of this world for over 6,000 years. And it's time for new leadership. And Jesus is going to take his rightful place on the throne very soon, I hope. Isaiah wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. For the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Isaiah 9, verses 6-7. through 7. Jesus is the perfect ruler. He is the perfect judge. He is all the things that Satan is not. And one of the most important differences is, that Jesus, our king, gave up his life for us. He shed his blood for us, and through him we have eternal life. Satan, who's the temporary ruler of this earth, gives up his life for no one. In fact, he comes to only kill, steal, and destroy. Who will you want to be your ruler? Look at verses 16 and 17. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. So we looked at the 24 elders and who they were back in Revelation 4, but I think a little recap is in order here, because they're interesting beings. Now, many have suggested that the 24 elders are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Others believe that the 24 elders consist of redeemed believers. But I believe this council is a special council of heavenly beings, and they've been in council with the Ancient of Days for centuries. And let me share with you why I believe this is a, just a special group of created beings, angels. The prophet Daniel writes about the thrones in heaven. He says, I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 10. So Daniel's given a vision of the throne room of God, just like John was. Were there 24 thrones in that vision? Maybe, just maybe there were. The court seated, 
Now that court represents those whom the thrones were brought out for. Makes sense, right? And the books were opened. Now it seems from Daniel's description of this that God convened a court of heavenly beings to discuss and or rule upon what was ever contained in those books. Listen to what the psalmist writes. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all those who surround him. Again, heavenly beings are mentioned in reference to a council with God. On earth, the Sanhedrin, consisting of 72 elders, always met to convene court to decide matters of the law. Are these 24 elders seated in heaven God's holy council who sit and discuss the affairs of mankind with God? Possibly. I believe they are. When we look at Daniel chapter 4, we get a little more insight into who this council of judges could be. This decision is by decree of the watchers and by the sentence of the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel chapter 4 verse 17. So the holy ones, the watchers, appear to meet to discuss the affairs of man and even declare sentence upon man. And that makes sense when you read Daniel chapter 7. Hopefully you're still with me. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever, Daniel 7.26. So what they meet to discuss and take away is the power over the nations that Satan has. So these elders spoken of here by Daniel, these holy ones, these watchers, could very well be this same heavenly court that God convenes to discuss the power structure of the world, these 24 elders. And perhaps they even serve as a council of war since they're meeting in heaven at a time in the beginning of the tribulation when God is about to wage war upon the earth. And here's a very interesting fact that I'm going to throw in the mix just absolutely free of charge. No cost to you. Satan may have been one who sat on those thrones. Listen to this verse in Isaiah that speaks of the devil. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, Isaiah 14, 13. The key here is that Satan had a throne in heaven. And it very well could mean that he was one of those 24 elders that sat on a throne as part of the council of God. But listen, we don't know with any certainty who these 24 elders are. It's just a little rabbit trail we can go down as long as we come back and don't get stuck down there. We're fine. It's just, it's not dogmatic. I'm just throwing it out there. You guys can believe that who they are and come up with your own opinion as to who they are. We don't know exactly who they are. We'll find out when we get to heaven, but for now, it's just speculation. But whoever they are, they've been waiting a very, very long time for this announcement when Jesus would take back the earth from Satan. It hasn't happened yet, but it is good as done. Now, this has been spoken of by the prophets for centuries, and it's been prayed for by believers for almost as long. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for this very day to happen. And now the day that the prophets have predicted and the believers have prayed for is finally here in the book of Revelation. And the 24 elders fall and worship God. And they worship God as almighty. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. 
And it's important to know the difference, especially in the day and age we live in today. The only power Satan has is the power that God allows him to have. God is all-powerful. And no one, nothing, or no nation, or no created being can ever stand before God. God is eternal. God always was, always is, and always will be. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Satan, however, does have a beginning. And he has an end, which is the lake of fire. And then, finally, sovereignty. God is in control. And when the angels say he has taken, meaning it's as good as done, meaning his reign will last forever. Satan's rule is quickly coming to an end. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, Satan will be bound in a pit for 1,000 years. But there's an interesting caveat to that, something that we should know about our own sin. It, it gives us a whole new perspective on our sin. During that thousand-year reign of Jesus, knowing as, known as the millennial reign, Satan is locked away in the bottomless pit in chains. He's locked away from mankind for 1,000 years. And during that time, the perfect ruler, the just ruler, Jesus Christ, will be on the throne. There's not going to be any injustice. There's not going to be any corruption. There's just going to be the perfect, just rule of Jesus for a thousand years. Satan is going to have zero influence on the world. And at the end of the thousand years, and this is definitely a question we want to ask the Lord when we get to heaven, Satan is loosed. Jesus lets him out. And he's able to gather an army. Flip over with me real quick to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 7, and nine, 7 to 9. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So this is a lot of people he's able to gather up. They went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. So remember, Satan has been bound for a thousand years. Jesus is on the throne, yet when Satan is released, he's able to gather an army as great as the sands of the sea and deceive them. How is that possible? Why would anyone want to side with Satan after experiencing the perfect just rule of Jesus? Now, you've got to keep in mind, these aren't the saints we're talking about. These are the children born during the millennial reign. There will be people born during the, during the millennial reign. They know the perfect, just rule of Jesus, yet their hearts probably long for a time when they could rule themselves. Because maybe as Jesus rules with a rod of iron, maybe it's just a little too much for them. And Satan finds a willing group of followers even after he's been bound for a thousand years. And you have to ask yourself, how is that possible? And the answer is because it never was about Satan. Satan can influence us. He can tempt us, and he does. He can cajole you into sinning, but it's our desperately wicked heart that leads us to sin. Satan didn't make us do it. Our wicked hearts are what wanted to do it in the first place. Satan just gives us, in, in most instances, just a little nudge. 
Satan can't make you do what you do not want to do. Do you understand that? I know Flip Wilson made that famous, right? The devil made me do it? No, he didn't make you do it. He can't make you do what you do not want to do. James wrote, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We are tempted and drawn away by our own desires. Do you hear what he's saying? Satan's going to tempt us, but it's our desires that cause us to sin. So getting back to the 24 elders, they are in awe of God. And it is with great relief that they fall flat on their faces in heaven and they begin to worship God. They're worshiping the fact, rejoicing over the fact that Satan is it's as good as done. He, his reign is coming to an end. The evil in this world is coming to an end. And the trumpet sounds telling heaven and earth that the time is near. The power of Satan will be finally removed from this earth. And when the 24 elders cry out, because you have taken your great power and reigned, that word taken means to seize control. Jesus is going to seize control of the earth from the enemy by whatever means necessary. Satan can't stand against Jesus or the power of heaven. He is a defeated foe. And Satan's loss of control began with the cross, didn't it? What Satan thought was the end of Jesus was really the beginning and the end for him. Look at verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear you, fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So the nations rage. Why? Why do the nations rage against God? I think it's a pretty simple answer, because they want to govern themselves. The psalmist wrote, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So the government of this earth, influenced by Satan, take counsel together against God. And what that means simply is that the presidents and the kings and the queens and the princes and the sultans and the prime ministers and so on and so forth all make their own plans. They all govern according to their own interests without ever seeking the counsel of God. They plot against what God wants. So decisions that they make like abortion, like same-sex marriage are against the will of God. And that really shouldn't surprise us when godless leaders make godless decisions to appease a godless world. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like unbelievers. What should shock us is when Christians support those godless decisions. And I want you to notice two important facts about the rulers of the nations and the plans that they make. First, the plans that they make, they plot in vain. So no matter what their aspirations are, no matter how they think that what they're doing is going to change the world, God is always going to have the last say. And second, the hold they have over the government is going to be broken in pieces and they will be cast away. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue will eventually come under the rule of the Messiah one day 
is as good as done. The problem with mankind from the very beginning has been what? Rebellion. It's been rebellion. It's been rebellion against the rule of God. People on the earth don't want to be governed by God. They don't want to be controlled or influenced by the word of God. That's inconceivable for us because we're praying for his return. We're praying for his reign. We're excited to see that he's coming back to this earth. But think about how we wound up in this position in the beginning. The position we're in, this sinful position on earth, is because of our rebellion. Satan said to Eve in the garden, For God knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to her eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3, verses 5 through 6. And Adam says to God, Oh, the woman you gave me. Eve took the bait. She took the bait. And she gave, and Adam gave in to the temptation. For Eve, it was a way for her to run her own life. She would be like God. She would be an equal to God. For Adam, who knows what was going through his mind. I mean, I picture Adam looking at the animals, looking at Eve. Looking at the animals, Looking at Eve, he's thinking, do I want to spend the rest of my life with the animals or with her? And so he chooses his wife. He chooses his wife, and it led to both of them dying spiritually and bringing sin and death into this world through their rebellion. In the land of Shinar, there was someone else who rebelled against God. His name was Nimrod. God had told the people at that time to spread out, to fill the lands, to multiply and fill the earth. And Nimrod and his group decided that they were going to govern themselves and settle in the land of Shinar. Now, the main problem with settling in Shinar was that they sought to make a name for themselves. They wanted to set themselves apart from everyone else. In effect, they're saying, we want to govern ourselves. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. And that began the same way it did in the garden, with disobedience and rebellion. In the garden, it was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the land of Shinar, it was spread out, be fruitful, and multiply. In both situations, God's commandments were ignored, and man showed that he wanted to govern himself. Even to this day, man doesn't want to be under the yoke of God. They want to self-govern. They want, they want it to be every man and woman for themselves. For the believer, it's the complete opposite, isn't it? We want to be under the control of God. We want to be his willing bondservants. We want to willingly serve Jesus Christ as Lord. But not everyone views Jesus as Lord because they have a hard time giving up the throne of their lives to Jesus. So the nations rage. They fight for control, even plot world domination. Many believers, many people believe rather that they're in control and that there's no need to believe in a God who is sovereign because we are in control of our own life. We're in control of our own destiny to the extent that a nation like the United States of America, which used to be a God-fearing nation, and maybe Barack Obama was right when he said we're no longer a Christian nation. He might have been hitting on something there. At least there's a remnant left. I don't think we're the Christian nation we were once at one time. When our forefathers prayed to God and sought his mercy and grace, where the Bible was used as a, as a reader in schools, children were taught how to read through the Bible. And each school day began with prayer. 
Now our leaders become enraged when God is mentioned and prayer is invoked. Prayer has been removed from the boardrooms, from the classrooms, from the workplaces, from places of government, and nations like this are pulling away from God. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And it's ironic that man believes that he can fix what's wrong with our planet, cure every disease, rebuild after every disaster until they can't. And inevitably, inevitably, people turn to God and pray to God for help, don't they? One of the most prayed prayers is 2 Chronicles 7.14. You guys are familiar with this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That's a wonderful prayer. And I'm not going to get into whether this verse is for us today because, listen, if you look every single point of this prayer up, you're going to find the mention of it in the New Testament. But that's not the point. Look at what that prayer says. If my people would humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, God's calling us to repent. Are we repenting? And the question I leave here, leave with you today is, as a nation, and I'm just talking about the United States now, as a nation, have we moved past the point of no return? Are we in a place found in Jeremiah 7 where God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them. Make no intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Jeremiah 7, verse 16. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? If we as a Christian nation continue to, to rage against God, continue to go against what God stands for, like the shedding of innocent blood, if we continue to do this, we're going to find ourselves in a place where God says, do not pray for this nation any longer because I will not hear your prayers. And listen, that's probably one of the scariest places we could ever find ourselves in because we certainly need prayer. And God tells John that he will destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, this isn't an attack on those who pollute the earth's environment. God's not making an environmental statement here. God's going to destroy those who pollute the earth with sin. Those who engage in immorality and corruption will be destroyed. The swamp will eventually be drained. Look at verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquakes, and great hail. In Revelation 10.1, John saw the mighty angel with the rainbow on his head, and that was a symbol of what? What's the rainbow a symbol of? God's mercy. It was also a symbol or a reminder of God's sovereignty that he will judge sin, because we know the, the rainbow was after the flood. The rainbow serves another purpose. Each time we see it in the sky, it's a reminder to us of the presence of God and the covenant that he made with us, that he would never again flood the earth with water. As the heavens open up, John sees the Ark of the Covenant, which is named because of the tablets of the covenant law that's inside that Ark. The Ark's a symbol of God's mercy as well. The cover of the Ark is called what? The mercy seat. And so here it is in the Holy of Holies at the mercy seat. 
that the atonement was made for the sins of the people of Israel every year by the high priest. Once a year, he would enter into that place. He would sprinkle the blood of the bull and the goats on the mercy seat, getting atonement and forgiveness for the people of Israel. And so it's a place of mercy, but it's also a place of judgment. It is where the sins of the people of Israel were judged once a year. It was also a place of God's presence. In Exodus 25 we read, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the ark you shall put in the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give to you in commandment to the children of Israel. So this was a place of remembrance of God's covenant with the nation of Israel because it contained the covenant law of Israel. So as John sees the ark in the sky, he also sees the lightning around it, the hail, the noises, the thunderings, the earthquakes. And so the ark of the covenant becomes a symbol of God's judgment as well. So that ark is a symbol of God's mercy, it's a symbol of his presence, his covenant, and his judgment, just as the rainbow was. So... It's a symbol of his mercy as God continues to reach out to the people of the earth during the tribulation and continues to offer them mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of his presence. God makes his presence known to mankind through the shakings of the heavens and the earth during the tribulation. It's a symbol of his covenant as the ark is a reminder for the tribulation that the tribulation rather is for the salvation of the what? The Jewish nation. It shows the Jewish nation and it also shows the church of God that God is not done with the nation of Israel. And it is a symbol of judgment as God shows the ark to John and John sees the lightning and the thunder and the hail and the earthquakes. It's a sign of judgment upon this Christ-rejecting world. Now, in addition to, you guys remember what was inside the ark? In addition to the, the two tablets of stone, there was a jar with manna and there was Aaron's rod that had budded. And each of those items represent not only God's faithfulness to man, but they also represent God's, or man's rather, rebellion against God. The manna. The manna represents what? God's provision. God's faithfulness to always provide. He fed the people in the wilderness. They never went hungry. But it also represents man's rebellion against God as they complained about the manna. Now the mixed multitude were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up, and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. Notice what they missed. The variety of foods that they cried out for were primarily used for flavor. They were primarily used to, to liven up meals. So they're missing, what they're saying is we're missing the variety and the spice of life that we had in Egypt. Now we know that Egypt is a metaphor for sin. God led them out of the bondage of Egypt just as Jesus has saved us from the bondage of sin. So in reality, what they're rebelling against is this new life in the promised land that God had promised them. They were missing their old life that they had in Egypt. They were missing, actually missing the bondage that they were in because it was more interesting. It was more fun. It was a little spicier. And you know our old life can seem like that sometimes, doesn't it? 
we tend to think we're missing something. But when you really sit down and you really take stock of who we once were and the life that we once led and what awaits us in heaven, there's really no comparison, is there? I don't ever want to go back to my old life without Jesus. And then there was the tablets of law. They represented the law of God for man to live by, but it also represented God's rebellion against, man's rebellion rather against God's law. In fact, before Moses can make it down to, to the bottom of the mountain, they're down there taking the gold that they had taken from Egypt, throwing it in a fire, and oops, a calf pops out. So before Moses can make it down to the bottom of the mountain, they're breaking God's covenant law by worshiping a golden calf. It appears that to the people, Moses had taken too long to make it down the bottom. It was 40 days and 40 nights, and the people were tired of waiting, so they created their own God to lead them. You know, whenever we get ahead of God's plan for our lives, we can grow weary for a response from him, can't we? We can get so far out there that we just grow weary waiting on God. And that inevitably leads us to do things on our own strength, which causes us to take control of the situation ourselves, saying, thanks, God, but I'll take it from here. You're, you're just taking too long. I can't wait for you any longer. And that can only lead to us making decisions that do not honor God. Amen? And then the other thing we had in the ark was, the, was Aaron's rod. And the budding of the rod represented God's chosen priest, but it also represented God, man's rebellion against God's authority. And that's how this all began in the first place. Man's rebellion against God's authority. We've been rebelling against his authority ever since, haven't we? And that's what led mankind, that's what leads mankind to this very day that we're reading about in, tribula in the tribulation in, in the book of Revelation. But remember, that ark also contained a cover, God's mercy seat which represented God's mercy toward mankind by the sending of his only begotten son, Christ Jesus, to die for our sin. The blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient for us to be saved. The blood of Jesus on the cross was for once and for all, was sufficient for all. The blood of, that Jesus shed on that cross was for the atonement of all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future. Not just once a year, but for all eternity. Before the death of Jesus on the cross, only the high priest was able to enter into the presence of God and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat behind a veil that separated him from everyone else. That priest entered that, that holy of holies in fear and trepidation that if he were unclean, he would die in that place. When Jesus died that day, that veil writ, ripped in two, giving us unlimited access to God the Father. And those who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ need never worry about death because of our uncleanness. Because we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified by the blood of Christ, always viewed as righteous and pure in the eyes of God because of our position in Jesus Christ. Amen? And if that's a position that you want to be in, if that's the position that you want to have, it's as simple as ABC. A, admit that you're a sinner, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one, the Bible tells us, for we've all sinned. And the penalty for that sin is eternal death. God who is holy, sinless, just, can't even look upon sin. So how can we enter sin? How can we enter 
heaven with this stain of sin upon us? And the answer to that is we can't. You cannot enter sin, sin rather. You cannot enter heaven with the stain of sin upon you. And that's why the gospel is called the good news. Because believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and turning to him as Lord and Savior, you're forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. You're justified just as if you've never sinned by his blood. That stain is removed. What was once red as crimson is now white as wool. And that brings us to B. Believe in your heart. Believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, and that he's coming again in judgment to judge the living and the dead. Romans 10, verses 10 through 11 tells us, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So once you admit that you're a sinner, and you believe that Jesus died for those sins, you repent from that sin, you turn from Jesus, and the Lord says you will be saved. And that brings us to C. Call upon the name of the Lord. Confess that you can't do this on your own. Acknowledge the fact that you need him. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Please don't ever feel that you've ever done anything that puts you out of the reach of God, that you've done something or many things that God could never forgive you for because that's just a lie from the pit of hell. There's only one thing that you can never be forgiven for, and that's to die in your sins. Die rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Anything else that you've done, anything else that you've done, can be forgiven if you just call upon the name of Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. Call upon his name. Ask him to be Lord and Savior. Submit your lives to him. Surrender your will to him, and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for that promise that when we call upon your name, we will be saved. Lord, as we go through the book of Revelation and we go through this time in the tribulation, it's such a scary time to be here, Lord. It's a, it's a time when no one should want to be on this earth. It's a time when judgment comes, a time when the earth is cleansed from sin. And Lord, we know from your word that there's going to be a great deception that comes upon mankind in those days. And so, Lord, if you want to believe in what the Antichrist says, you'll believe it. If you want to believe in the false prophet, you'll believe it. And Lord, I pray that there are those, and they come to the realization that that the Antichrist and the false prophet is not the way, that you are the only way to be saved from that time. I pray, Lord, that they put their faith and hope and trust in you. And I pray that they do that now, Lord, before that day ever comes, before they ever have to make that hard decision of following you or losing their life. Lord, we just pray as I lift up all those who are hearing this word this morning, Lord, that they would make that decision to come to you as Lord and Savior before the day of the tribulation ever arise. Go before us now, Lord Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.